Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my Old Kentucky podcast. I'm Jasmine Smith, and Robert Connie is not with me today, but joining me is Lamar Allen, and he's going to go through the news with us. So, Lamar, welcome back to my Old Kentucky podcast. Thank you for having me, and um, Robert might be out of job after this. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, so if our listeners have not heard you on the podcast before, um, Lamar is an educator at Yates Elementary in Lexington, Kentucky. In 2020, he ran for the Kentucky House of Representatives in District 56, which is Woodford and parts of Fayette and Franklin counties. He won the Democratic primary against another former podcast guest, Bob Gibson, but lost in the general election to Republican Daniel Fister. And Lamar, I don't know if you know this, but you were our last in-person interview before COVID. Did you know that? <laughs> I did not know that until I read the notes. And yeah. I don't know if that's a good thing or just a bad omen. Uh, for today. So I'm going to say it's a good thing that this means we're getting back to normal. Yeah. Um, And obviously a lot has happened since we last talked to you. So I wanted to catch up with you a little bit. So in 2020, Democrats didn't manage to flip a single seat and they also lost a lot of seats, including District 56. Your race was a little closer than some of the races across the state. You only lost by about a thousand votes. But what do you think happened in District 56? And, you know, is there anything that you would have done differently in your campaign looking back? Um, I think, one, we, we got that Trump effect for sure mm-hmm. uh, across the district. I think also by following the CDC recommendations... Uh, it put a lot of Democrats on the defense. My pathway to winning in the primary was knocking doors and talking to people. And that changed dramatically um, after I left the podcast. Yeah. The <laughs> that, that, that whole world is different now. So it went to phone calls and text messages. And as great as that was, it just it wasn't the same. You didn't have those same connections um, that you had prior. I also think that a lot of groundwork needs to be laid right now. So in our case, I was, I'm, I was new, you know, I was the new candidate Mm -hmm. and my district, as you said, was all of Woodford parts of Franklin and parts of Fayette County. And uh, if I could do it over, I would, I would start a year earlier and make sure that I'm having conversations with every single person in the district. And I think it's important to be in the district on a regular basis and making sure people see you doing that real authentic work. Because then when it comes time to vote for you, um, it's not a question. They know that you're committed. They know that you're in the neighborhood. They know that you're doing good work in the neighborhood. And it's less of an ask and it's more of a like hop on the train because we're, we're already moving. Yeah. Do you know whether your Republican opponent, you know, was still doing things like in person or knocking doors? Because I do wonder if like CDC restrictions had a huge effect or if it was mostly Trump that had the huge effect. Um, so in my case, uh, there was some some things that were, you know, some doors being knocked during that time. But at the end of the day, I'm like I'm very reflective and. I really think it's important that um, when it comes to whether you win, lose, or you have to do it your way. And I, I did it my way. Like I wanted to prioritize the folks whose door I was going to knock on. Um, I was calling them 
And I will be honest, there was times that I would call someone and it'll say, well, I'm only going to vote for you if you knock on my door. You know, so it puts you in this bind of, well, they want me to knock on their door, but I, I just can't do that. Mm-hmm. And I, I just can't risk anyone else's life. I can't go to bed at night thinking that I may have done something that puts someone else's life or well-being at risk. So um, I can't really speak to everything that goes on in other campaigns, but I can speak to the fact that uh, within our campaign, we were really strict. Like we went straight virtual. Uh, I think we transitioned really well going virtual, but it was still new. And my district is actually um, older than most districts in the state. So while we're going virtual, it does limit our audience in the immediate time because our district is so much older than the districts around it. Yeah. So, I mean, hopefully campaigns will be a little more back to normal for 2022. So what do you think Democrats need to do in 2022 to try to flip back some of these seats? You know, coming through that process, is kind of like a gauntlet and the number one thing that I've taken away from it is just being authentic. Like, look, we're not in the business of begging for votes, right? Like, and we shouldn't be in the business for begging for votes. And our constituents should know that we are in their community. We should be in the trailer parks. And I feel like I say this all the time. We should be in the trailer parks. We should be in the hood. You know, we, we need to be in the East End. Like, that. those are our constituents. We need to be where the people are. No more events at the vineyards, no more soirees, right? We need to we need to touch people. And uh, I think that that happens now. You know, this is the time we can't show up three, four, five months, six months before an election and say, hey, vote for me. I think we have to be a major component to a community. And, and I very much think of the party. The party should be a movement, you know. For me, I think it should be a, uh, a inclusive and diverse movement. And my thing is like energizing and engaging young people. But it should be a movement where you don't think of the Democratic Party as just this institution. You look at the Democratic Party as this integral component to your neighborhood. And you know that they're going to have events. They're going to be registering you every day. You know that there's going to be times that we're at the park and we pull up a grill and we're going to be grilling in the neighborhood while getting you the health care options that you need and the information that you need. And we're registering you at the same time. I think once we become really ingratiated and a part of the community, um, the votes will come. But there's the groundwork is for me, the enjoyable, you know, the enjoyable work of networking with the individuals in the community and doing that work that has to happen first. We can't be campaign, campaign, campaign. We have to be people first. And I think the campaign component handles itself. Yeah, I think that like longtime Kentucky Democrats, I think that they kind of thought that the bleeding was over after 2016 since they kind of like held in the 2018 election. So I I feel like they were blindsided by what happened. And hopefully that's going to like change some things. And hopefully there are going to be some new ideas about what needs to be done in 2022 i hope so as you know we're going through the reorganization process yeah which the goal is to bring in new ideas new people um you know we're always trying to re-energize the party so that that is the goal what i can say is 
after my election and after reflecting with my team, we decided that it doesn't stop there. You know, we have to be the change that uh, we want to see in the community. So there were some hardships that we dealt with within our campaign. I think all candidates deal with, you know, certain hardships. And we just made it point that, like, whoever runs next in that position will not have to deal with the same things that we had to deal with at times, whether that was small or big. And we've just decided like to put our boots down on the ground and do everything we can to be present uh, here in Fayette County. So speaking of things that you're doing, you now have a new role as the president of Fayette County Young Democrats. So talk about some of the work that has been done since you took over as president and what you plan on doing with them in the future. Yeah. So first, you just mentioned the best organization. In Kentucky, <laughs> right. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, shameless plug there. Uh, best organization in Kentucky. Our meeting is May 27th at 6 p.m. We want you there. We're in the process of rebuilding uh, Fayette County Young Dems. When I uh, ran, one thing that was noticeable was within my the counties that I was running to represent, we didn't have an active Young Dem presence in any of those three counties. With, I would say, the high school Dems at Woodford County, now they were like rock stars, right? Yeah. So if they're watching this, they are absolute rock stars. But we were missing that component. We were missing engaging young people, and we just didn't have a, uh, there was no platform for them at that point. So we, uh, when I say we, I say like my team and I and, and people that I've met along the way, we've decided to bring the Fayette County Young Dems back. So uh, it's been a process. It's been a absolute process, but I think that this is the work that if done well, if we're completely committed to it, this is the work that will lead to winning elections. You know, creating a, a base of young people who have not been engaged and have not been activated and literally plucking them from, you know, their high school seats, if you will, and getting them involved in the day to day work of our party, uh, of our organization, I think is going to be absolutely critical. So right now we are building from the ground up. We just got chartered in March. We need people to rework our bylaws. We want our bylaws to uh, be soundproof and, and, and ready so that the next president and the next VP and the next treasurer uh, have a strong footing. We're also making sure that one of our major goals is to not only be on every campus here in Fayette County, but to be in every single high school here in Fayette County. So we are actively uh, working to ensure that we have a viable organization going forward that is really reflective and and reflective of the community, to be honest with you. So the work is definitely not done, but that's why, you know, I use the platform that, that you all have to, to, to promote mm -hmm. it so that we can ensure that we have as many young Dems as possible come in and really make this party their party. Yeah, I think that's really important because I was a college student in Lexington not that long ago, and I didn't know anything about Fayette County Young Democrats. So, you know, I, I think it's important that we build those groups county by county because it really, how strong the party is in each county varies wildly across the state. So 
appreciate that you're doing that work, but you are also a teacher. So just share a little bit about what it's been like teaching elementary school students during a pandemic over the last year. It has been one of the best times. I know most people weren't expecting that. It's been one of the best times ever, but it's also somewhat worrisome because I feel like we just as a profession, we just miss so many opportunities to just truly transform education for our children. And I Mm -hmm. say that because if you think about it, we're always talking about meeting students where they are and creating a culture and creating a rapport uh, with your students. And my thing is, what better way for kids to know their teacher and for you to know them than when you cut on the camera on Zoom and they can see where you live, you know? And you can see where they live. And I have a four-year-old son. And if my four-year-old son is sick for the day, he's at home with us, that they can see my four-year-old son and they can understand that, like, guess what? He's sick. Mr. Allen needs to take a two-minute break. But he's going to come back, give you everything he's got, you know. But for two minutes, he just has to make sure that his son is okay. I think we miss some of those human, like, just the, the human aspect of, what this could have been. And uh, so for that part, that saddens me because I think we had opportunities to, look, let's do a tour through Mr. Allen's house, right? <laughs> and we can do a tour through your house too. Or you know what? Mr. Allen's going to walk to the park today and let's talk about, let's talk class while I'm at the park and give you some experiences outside of your, you know, the confines of your, of your home. So from that standpoint, I wish we could have done more. But I'm a STEM teacher and like Zoom and using filters and editing video. I mean, I thought I was Steven Spielberg uh, throughout (laughs) the uh, throughout the pandemic. So I was making like really ridiculous and random videos and I had skits in the videos. And, you know, I did the whole nine yards like one lesson. And this is for those people who say teachers had a had a day off, like one 30 minute lesson would take me nine hours in terms of video editing and everything, right? Yeah. And my, you know, I'm teaching four to five classes a day. So that kind of tells you the workload. There's many days that I'm up at one or two in the morning, three in the morning, making sure that these videos are like pristine. (laughs) But (laughs) um, it, it was awesome because I've always been an advocate for tech inclusion in the classroom. And this was kind of like, this was forced but I think it grew our students and it grew teachers tremendously. Like, I don't think that we would have had as tech savvy a school population if we would have provided trainings over five years. And we basically got all of that over the course of, you know, three months. Yeah, I think it taught a lot of us how to be creative in the jobs that we do. Because like even being a lawyer, clients have to show up at every court appearance in the pre pandemic times. And now we can say, hey, this isn't like a critical hearing. We're just here for a status conference how about they just be present on the phone? Right. Or like right. when when I have multiple places to be at motion hour, wouldn't it be so much easier if I could call into a motion hour right. w- while dealing with another one? So right. I think that we have learned a lot <laughs> yes. throughout the last year. <laughs> I, I agree. I, I hope that we keep some of the things that were great about this. Yeah. And carry them forward. Definitely. 
All right, so switching gears a little bit, the Louisville Metro Police Department killed Brianna Taylor just a couple weeks after we last spoke to you. We've been talking about the movement for racial justice across the state basically ever since. And so Robert and I mostly see what's going on in Louisville because that's where we live. Um, but can you talk a little bit about what the response has been like in Lexington and Central Kentucky where you are? Yeah, so I actually, so as you probably know, a lot of my family lives in Louisville. I lived in Louisville for, I guess, the majority of my life when I think about it. And I think there was a different level of impact in terms of the community in general, right? Like Fayette County, Central Kentucky in general in comparison to Louisville. But like when you like dig down a little deeper, I think the black experience and the experience of black folks in Fayette County and minorities in Fayette County and Central Kentucky, it was it was the exact same, you know? Um, I just think it's easier to escape it you know, and like you can say, oh, it's bad and I wish that didn't happen. And, you know, I'll be honest, I was in a uh, during my campaign in a Zoom and that's exactly what someone said. It was like, oh, that, you know, it was unfortunate, you know, but I think it's easier to have those kind of conversations the further you are away from it proximity wise. Right. As a black person, absolutely terrified, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't matter if you're in Louisville or if you're in uh, in Fayette County. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter because it's so it's very real to us. You know, it, it's so real to us. And we know that that could be any of us. And unfortunately, we often don't feel as if we're going to get that benefit of the, of the doubt when law enforcement comes, in this case, not knocking on uh, allegedly, I guess, not knocking on the door. So. The impact, uh, it's still very real, but it was not the same. Like I I participated in one of the protests and the difference between what you all were experiencing in Louisville and what was happening in Fayette County, it was was a major difference. And then like, let's say in Woodford County, it was completely different, right? It was a different world in terms of the way that that, you know, that peaceful protest looked in comparison to what it looked like in Louisville. So that is one, there, there's some alarming things about that because I think it's, it's really easy for people to not demonstrate empathy or put themselves in other people's shoes. And what I've noticed is that there's a uh, tendency for there to be like the city folk and then there's the other folks, right? And the city folks like, what they deal with, it's easy to like compartmentalize that and say that's because they live in this city and mm-hmm. this city is like that. If you ask a lot of people outside of Louisville what Louisville is like, they would probably describe a war zone to you, you know? Um, and I, I just think that there's this divide in knowledge and divide in experience. But in terms of the black community, I mean, it's still like it happen you know i i this is somewhat off subject but i uh my wife was going out my wife's going to louisville she's in louisville now and she uh i i was like well i'm gonna work out i'm gonna go run and it was like nine o'clock and she was like you're not running at nine o'clock at night you know and and i and full disclosure i didn't but i kind of pushed her a little further i was like 
why can't I go run at nine o'clock at night? And like, it was clear that she was upset that I was even contemplating running, you know, at like eight thirty, nine o'clock at night. So like the realities that, that we've seen now on camera in some cases is very real. So for the black community, it's just so relatable that there's no difference there. But I do think that there is a, there is a divide between city and, and non-city in terms of the way that they look at policing and the Breonna Taylor um, murder in my uh, case. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that you're right. And so in Louisville, you know, we've seen our Metro Council unanimously ban no-knock warrants. And we've also been having a lot of discussions about, you know, what the search warrant process should look like. And I know that Lexington's council is also considering a ban on no-knock warrants. Are there other changes that are being discussed in Lexington? Or like, are there changes that you would like to see? Well, I, I've said there should be a complete ban on no-knock warrants. We have several uh, faith leaders, black faith leaders, who mm-hmm. have been on the forefront of that work. Um, we have a, a racial and equity commission that has recommended a ban on all no-knock warrants, but it has not happened. So a question that was brought up um, by that commission was, so do you back us or do you back the police chief? Right. Right. I think that's a very real conversation, a real question, you know, and I think it's a, um, and of course it was answered in, you know, this is not, I'm backing one over the other, but from my understanding in the last five years, there's been four no knock warrants in Lexington or Fayette County. And I don't understand. It's hard for me to grasp, you know, for something that is utilized so rarely, but can be so devastating. Why that is a practice that should continue on when we clearly have evidence of how devastating it can be and how it can be misused and how there's a a lack of transparency associated with it. Um, Why would we want to continue to implement a practice like that? Yeah, I actually said on the podcast last week, if only four have been executed in the last five years, if, if they're that rare, why not just get rid of them? It seems like a pretty easy yeah. decision. <laughs> I agree. All right. Before we get to the news, one last question for you. So, you know, your House campaign showed a lot of promise. You were the first black candidate to become the Democratic Party's nominee for District 56. And then you had a really close general race. So what is next for you? I want to, um, so for those that don't know, I'm not running this cycle. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, I put that out there, um, a few months ago. I really want to build the infrastructure and, and I don't mean this in like a braggadocious way, but I do think that it's important that we have a role in building a party that is us. And I, I just want to include everyone in the process. And I don't think that this, I don't think that this party should be a party of maintaining power. I think that this should be a party of inclusion, a party that promotes diverse ideas. It should be a party that uh, is doing real work in communities. So to that end, I often talk about this with my team. And that is, you know, again, not being braggadocious, but saying like, how can we take over this party? 
you know? <laughs> so <laughs> we try to do everything in our power to ensure that we're providing opportunities for other people. Even when I ran my campaign, it was never about me as much as I wanted to make sure that our constituents had someone who respected them, who did everything in their power to to honor them uh, daily uh, in Frankfurt. And I think now my role is to um, try to build a sustainable infrastructure for the party, but also build one that is very representative of the folks in Kentucky. If other people listening want to join you in doing that, how should they do that? Yeah. So if you want to be a part of the best organization in Kentucky, which you do, clearly, (laughs) um, (laughs) May 27th, we are having a Fayette County Young Gym meeting. And I would love for you all to not only come, but be a part of it. We're looking for committee members to really craft what the Fayette County Young Dems looks like. But I'll go further. Do you have a young dim organization in your county? If you don't, you can reach out to me. And there's several others because I couldn't do it by myself. Brother, that is uh, Stefan, which is the KYD president. Um, a great resource is Sharon Murphy and Dustin Burley. Those people are awesome. Awesome. And get a young dim org in your community. But yeah, first, come to the Fayette County Young Dems, 27th at 6 p.m. And let's really start getting the ball uh, rolling so that we can do some amazing things uh, in the very, very near future. Awesome. Thanks, Lamar. Um, So now that we've caught up with you, we need to catch up on the news for this week. So we're going to be talking a bit about protests and policing and COVID, which have been our two main topics for the last 14 months. (laughs) All right, so um, getting to protests and policing, Spectrum News reported that just over one-third, so 34%, just barely over a third of LMPD staff have reported being vaccinated, which is the second lowest vaccination rate among Metro Louisville employees. And to me, this isn't surprising, but it's unfortunate because so many employees who work with the most vulnerable populations seem to be the ones who aren't getting vaccinated. So Lamar, like, were you surprised at hearing like this one third number? Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) No, not at all. Absolutely not. I think this has bigger, um, you know, bigger implications in terms of the demographics of the department. Right. Yeah. And also the individuals that are attracted to those roles, because if you peel peel this back a little bit, we know what demographics are more likely to be unvaccinated. And in this case, as you said, you're talking about a group of people who are dealing with our most vulnerable population, you know. And to be honest, I think that if that's not a red flag, I mean, there's been a lot of red flags recently, but that this is just another red flag in terms of recruitment and also who you're engaging to recruit into this process of uh, being a a member of law enforcement. So not surprising at all. Yeah. And I mean, like police officers and correctional officers, they're dealing so often with homeless people, people with addictions, disabled people. And I mean, it's, it's just really like sad and frustrating that they can't do this thing to like help their community or to protect people, which is what, you know, they've sworn to do. 
I saw today that Metro is going to require employees to report whether they've been vaccinated. So at least now we'll have maybe a more accurate picture because this one third number is just staff that's reported, but they don't know if they're are others who have been vaccinated that didn't report or things like that, but they are going to require them now. Um, so maybe we'll get more accurate numbers on Metro employees soon. And hopefully that number goes up if they have to report it. But I don't know. I'm not going to hold my breath for that. <laughs> no, me neither. Me neither. Also, Chief Erica Shields testified at the Metro budget hearing yesterday. She, of course, said that salary increases were necessary to stem the tide, basically to just keep employees there, and that the budget increase would be used for new technology, preventative efforts, and intelligence to combat violent crime. Um, to me, there isn't any thing like surprising or earth shattering about those words. I think those are the things that police chiefs always say, you know, they're always going to justify their budget increases and say that they're going to be used in these certain ways. But a couple other things that I did learn from her testimony that were new to me, it seems that the place-based investigations unit has been disbanded. This was the unit that conducted the investigation that led to the search warrant for Breonna Taylor's apartment. And the reason I note this is because the police department, they'll create these new units to tackle drug crime or violent crime and something usually goes wrong with them or they get some kind of bad reputation and then they end up disbanded, but then they just seem to come back as something else. Like there's been something called a Viper unit and then there was a ninth mobile unit. And so while I think maybe it's a good thing that it's been disbanded at this time, eventually we always seem to see these these same kind of units come back in their same form eventually. Um, so yeah, same form as well. Yeah. And the other piece of news that I learned from her testimony was that as far as she knows, no officers have utilized the down payment incentive program. So this is something that was discussed last year because a lot of officers don't live in the community that they are serving. LMPD officers live in Bullitt County, Spencer County, Shelby County, um, and they're coming into the city. So there was a program where they could get down payment incentives for certain zip codes in the city, and it seems that no officers have even used it. Uh, well, um, you know, that is so surprising. <laughs> um, they don't want to live in certain zip codes. Wow. Yeah. Um, I do. Uh, unfortunately, there was there's nothing that is surprising there. I would I would have been more surprised if you would have said, you know, there was a discussion about a, a retraction, you know, a reduction in in the overall budget for the police department, or they were repurposing part of the budget for um, to focus more in on social services. Unfortunately, in my opinion, this is kind of the same, same old saying. Mm -hmm. We're going to get a uh, bloated police department budget. Meanwhile, we have folks in Louisville struggling. And uh, I just wish that this, um, this view of policing that to me is oftentimes on the verge of buying militarized equipment and and things of that nature, I wish that we could take a step back for a second and realize that um, we've gone through this process over and over and over again. 
we, we have allowed police departments to continue to create new units and get better technology. And it doesn't seem to be, you know, any consistent change in the happenings in a lot of these communities. And when there is a change, I can't necessarily speak to them being uh, consistently positive changes because the relationships with the individuals who are most overly policed um, often are not positive uh, relationships with police officers. Yeah, I mean, Lamar, you're speaking my language. <laughs> These are the things that I talk about every week on the show. And again this week, none of it surprises me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I, it's, it's sad. It's sad. And, like, there is real world and real life implications for this but at some point we've got to stop and i i think we have a lot of individuals who speak to the need for a change in policing but um you're we're gonna have to have people in place who are actually wanting to do that work and take the flack um for doing that work on behalf of their uh on behalf of in this case jefferson county but on behalf of their constituents yeah Absolutely. Um, a couple weeks ago, we also talked about how we were still waiting a report from the National Guard's investigation into David McAtee's killing. This week, the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting received the report, but nearly all of it is redacted. So it concludes that soldiers followed proper training and procedures, but we don't know how they reached that conclusion. There were also... 66 recommendations made in the after action report, but only three of them were made public and two of them were about personnel reports. And the other one was a recommendation for the National Guard to provide soldiers with behavioral health resources. So I, I guess I understand that some things might need to be redacted for like intelligence reasons. But this isn't that this is looking back at the National Guard killing someone and looking at what happened and what went wrong. And I think that's something that there isn't any reason it should be privileged and that the public needs to know. Completely agree. It just, it just reeks of self-protection. Yeah, it really does. It just reeks of self-protection. Uh, I went and read that and, you know, I read a bunch of black bars. Mm -hmm. So that, and that's all there is. There's just really no information that would lead you to having a better understanding of the situation, in my opinion. So um, I'm hoping we get more in the, in the near future, but it just doesn't feel like there's right, right now because of the information that has been given out and has been released. Um, I don't think there's much to build off of besides, you know, speculation. Yeah. And, and I can understand protecting information that has to do with like how they conduct investigations, but it's basic like accountability like that we want. And I'm hoping that the attention that the redacted report is getting and the blowback from that will encourage releasing more information, but with what we have from now, we really have no idea what happened and what can be done better at all. Yes. I am pessimistic about this one. You know, I'm extremely pessimistic because um, it seems like when there are opportunities to do right and to be transparent, we're often, you know, there's so many barriers to just get to the truth. Yeah. And 
that's that just just does not breed trust with the community. And there's people who are hurting. They've lost a loved one, and they're looking for answers. And there's nothing about this report that provides any additional answers. Right. And as we've talked about on this podcast many times before, law enforcement agencies have been very difficult when it comes to open records requests. And it usually requires losing in court before they turn over the information. (laughs) All right. One last thing I wanted to note in this segment is a little different than the other stories, um, a different kind of protest. So this past weekend, a few hundred people gathered at the waterfront to show Solidarity for Palestine. Representative Attica Scott was there, and she briefly spoke with demonstrators. May 15th was the day of the protest, and May 15th is Nakba, which is the day that Palestinians were displaced for the creation of the state of Israel. And there's another protest in support of Palestine on May 23rd in Louisville. And so this conflict is something that's like outside the realm of what we talk about. We talk about Kentucky politics and politics. Policy, but I did want to note this because it did attract a large crowd in Louisville. And I think it's something we're going to continue to see in Louisville and maybe even in Lexington this year. I agree. And I, I think I've seen it online. I have seen it with some friends of mine as well. I think this is going to continue to gain traction. And I think, you know, we do stick to Kentucky politics, but, you know, this is, this is, impacting members of our community. So it's important Mm -hmm. that we make sure that we are as knowledgeable about the things that are impacting our neighbors um, as we are about our local politics as well. Yep, definitely right. All right, moving on to COVID. So last Thursday, the same day that the vaccine was approved for 12 to 15 year olds, the CDC announced new guidance that vaccinated people can resume indoor activities without a mask. And so this, of course, prompted an immediate response from the governor. I don't think he was supposed to give a press conference that day, um, but he recorded a quick video on Thursday to say that Kentucky would follow the new guidelines and that he would hold a press conference the next morning about updating current restrictions. So he announced Friday that vaccinated people are no longer required to wear a mask in most settings, but they're still required in healthcare, long-term care, correctional facilities, homeless shelters, K-12 education, and public transportation, and around immunocompromised people. He also announced that the mask mandate and capacity limits would be lifted on June 11th to give um, like 12 to 15-year-olds more time to get their first vaccination. So, um, Lamar, I know that you have a child that is under the age of 12. So what did you think about Bashir's new COVID restrictions? Yeah. Could I say um, not understanding it? I realize that it's a um, you know this is this is the CDC, but there's just no way to enforce this. You know, there's right. like it puts the onus on local businesses, and I'll be and local businesses. I can understand this. They're like, are we going to ask individuals if they've been vaccinated, particularly if these individuals are then going to like berate us and uh, cuss us out and cause all kinds of drama at our storefront? You know, it just puts everyone in a really tough situation. I have a four year old son. Basically, what you're saying is that no matter where I take my son, I would have to trust that everyone in the building is vaccinated who doesn't have a mask on and we know that you know this is kind of like an anti-maskers parade right now like this is the greatest this was 
what they've been waiting for this entire time. They just kind of waited out the process and they'll just be intermingling with everyone else. And I'm vaccinated. My wife's vaccinated, but my four-year-old son is not. And my four-year-old son has asthma and, and, you know, it's just one of those things that I am now kind of like checking regularly on my phone and on my computer on when will 12 and below be vaccinated because we are in a situation where we're probably going to continue to wear a mask in all public spaces. One, because it's really tough to talk to your four-year-old and you're going around and you have, you don't have a mask on, your four-year-old has a mask on, you have to explain that he's the only one who has to wear it in this scenario. Furthermore, we just don't want our son sick, Mm -hmm. you know, and it like, you're asking us to have a, um, an honor system with untrustworthy people in some cases, you know, and I just personally cannot, um, allow that kind of, um, laxed protocol to impact my four-year-old son. So in outdoor areas, yes, we won't wear our masks, but pretty much in any indoor area, we're going to continue to wear our mask one for our son, but then also, I mean, it's, it's hard for us to just trust folks who have not worn a mask consistently throughout the entire pandemic. Yeah, I think that this is the most difficult for people with young families because they've been waiting to resume activities until their kids can get vaccinated. And now it's just become a free for all for anybody at this point. I was hoping maybe, you know, maybe 4th of July would have been a better date to change restrictions because then at least 12 to 15 year olds can have both vaccines and maybe then it's it starts to become approved for younger ages but now I feel like for most for a lot of people in the state the pandemic's over at this point absolutely and and I just I I hope and I pray that we don't have to backtrack from this yeah I thought I was thinking that the masks were kind of like a decent status quo. Like it wasn't going too far in any direction. It was just kind of like, all right, like this is the bare minimum you can do. And now with basically the removal of masks, I just wonder if we get the variant, you know, and we're having some major issues. If when the next time the governor says, okay, guys, like we're, we're in the the red. Now we need to wear a mask again. What the, um, what the acceptance of wearing masks again will be. Right. And that'll be probably pretty difficult, I would assume. And so, like, that gets me to the Republicans' response to this. So the Republican spokesman on COVID restrictions has kind of been Ryan Quarles. And I think this means that he's running for governor. (laughs) And he's been criticizing Bashir regularly about his vaccine goal for reopening. And then now he's criticizing him for abandoning the vaccine goal, but still holding Kentucky hostage. And what I've seen from a lot of people is like, they don't think that Ryan Quarles believes that, but he's saying that because it's the popular thing for him politically. A lot of people my age know him. They went to law school with him and they're like, I think he's a reasonable person. He's just doing this for popularity, but... I don't really know at this point. I can't really tell if he believes what he's saying. It seems that nothing that Bashir could do would please Republicans at this point. Correct. Correct. Um, 
I kind of look at it like I'm going to take him at face value. You know, I would love to give him the benefit of the doubt, but when you're putting it out there on a public platform, that's just how you feel. And in my case, like I just like I cannot give Republicans any credit in <laughs> Kentucky's COVID response. You know, I just don't think that they get the credit for that because I feel like they have fought Governor Bashir tooth and nail, you know, for everything he's done. And now that our numbers are better and we're at a place where, you know, we can be more lax on certain things, then you then you combat him for that. Now he's doing a disservice to all the kids because he had them wear masks throughout the school year. It, it just never ends. But the truth is that there's they've come with very little to no solutions. This is a multifaceted problem and there's been very few solutions. The only thing that I've heard is open the state back up. We don't need a mask. And the reality is if you would wear your mask, it would have been a lot quicker in terms of us opening the state back up. I sometimes think that the Republicans are their own worst enemies, but we have to capitalize on that as well and call call it out when we see it and I also think we have to like we have to sometimes say if you said it then you believe it you know yeah if you said it then then you believe it and sometimes it's not about political points look i know there's things that i say that may not make every democrat happy or in love with me but that's okay because i'm i'm being real with you and i'm being honest with you and if you're doing things just to score points on uh governor Bashir, you know if you end up losing uh, you're going to regret that you said some of those things, uh, particularly when that wasn't really you who said them. Yeah. It, I mean, something that they have done well at is like all getting on the same page. Like they're all spouting the same things about Bashir and about the mask mandate and about holding Kentucky hostage. They're all using that phrase. And so they do a really good job with like their party's messaging they're really good readers. Yeah. They're really good. Yeah. Yeah. Just the last few COVID notes, um, stats for this week. So the positivity rate was down to 2.77% today. So we're under 3%. Um, the only red counties this week were Webster, Rockcastle, and Adair County. So there's not really like one cluster because those three counties are all in pretty different parts of the state. Um, and like we've talked about before, being in the red zone is 25 cases per 100,000. So it may be still a very small outbreak that puts them in the red zone, but right. um, most of our counties are out of it. Over 1.9 million people have received at least one dose of the vaccine at this point, um, the top and bottom counties for vaccination rates have mostly stayed the same, except that Jefferson has fallen out of the top five. So the top five vaccinated counties are Fayette, Woodford, and Franklin, which are the counties that make up the 56. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 56 is on top of the game. I'm yeah, they are. Um, and then Scott and Campbell County is the county that knocked Jefferson County out of the top five. On the bottom have been the same five counties, Christian, Spencer, Ballard, Lewis, and McCreary. Um, so it's not really just one region that isn't getting vaccinated because these, these counties are kind of all over the state too. We've got Lewis and McCreary County in Eastern Kentucky, and then Spencer's just outside of Louisville, um, and then Christian in Western Kentucky. So um, they're kind of spread out all over the state. 
So that is it for our COVID update. Last but not least, we have a couple quick hits. These are, I guess, more of a preview of future episodes probably than just quick hits because I think these will be developing stories that we'll talk about soon. One is the state's sunrise contract. So the Cabinet for Health and Family Services will stop placing children at Sunrise Children's Services, which is a private Baptist agency, on July 1st if they don't agree to the state's contract, which contains a clause that bans discrimination based on sexual orientation. The five Republican state officers have put out a joint letter calling on the governor to renew the contract, and Republican legislators have done that as well. So this is a bigger story that I'd like to get to talk about this summer because there's a whole federal lawsuit, and I have experience in working with children who have been placed at places like Sunrise Services, but that's where we are with it right now. We're approaching the time when their contract might expire. And last, um, the Kentucky Public Pensions Authority contracted with a law firm to investigate improper or illegal activities related to past investments. We've been waiting on the results from this investigation for a long time. The report came out today, but Daniel Cameron's office declined to turn it over, and they haven't replied to at least the Courier-Journal's open records request at this point. So I'm I'm guessing that this is something we're going to be talking more about either when it becomes public or we'll be talking about the fact that it hasn't. (laughs) But that is something to look out for as well. So that is all we've got today. Thank you, Lamar, for co-hosting today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, Robert, I'm I'm sorry, but, you know, your job is gone. I I (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you said we earlier referring to the podcast, so you're part of the family now. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I'll go ahead and collect my, I need to know the benefit package of being a part of the podcast. Well, the answer is that there isn't one. (laughs) Wow, wow, wow. Okay, well, I have to rethink my decision. Well, at least we got you for one episode. (laughs) No, it was awesome. Thank you for having me. Um it's always awesome to be a part of a podcast that I listen to daily. So that's awesome. And thank you for allowing me to like really shout out the 56 and shout out the Fayette County Young Dem. So I can't thank you enough for that. Yeah, absolutely. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY pod. You can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of your choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Fridays. You can subscribe to it at forwardky.com slash newsletters. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we are doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Dimcast network.